Let's open our Bibles. We're in the book of Jeremiah. You knew that. Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 9 through 19 is our text. We're going to finish the chapter. You open your Bible or navigate on your electronic device, your tablet or phone. I've been mentioning that more because some people, every now and then somebody comes up and they says, hey, you know, I've got my phone in my hand during church or my iPad or whatever, and people think I'm goofing off, but I'm actually following the study. And I said, no, you're, you're goofing off, but <laughs> it's okay as long as you're listening. Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 9 through 19 is our text. The topic we're going to find there, God tells Jeremiah that he will make him like a walled city. So the title of our message is, Jeremiah was a bulwark. <laughs> Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for our morning. We're here for a reason, Lord. Uh, we have our own reasons, and of course you have reasons as well. You've brought us here. Uh, the convergence of those reasons, Lord, is so that we will see Christ. We will understand your love and grace and mercy, the forgiveness of our sins, the acceptance that we have as uh, in your beloved son, and that we will be uh, conformed and changed into the image of Jesus Christ a little bit more today from having been here. Certainly we want to understand your word as it was written in its original context to the original audience, Lord, but also to ourselves here in the year 2012. We need your spirit to make those connections, Lord, to show us its relevance and pertinence and application. And so do that, we pray. And I pray that we would all believe, Lord, that you will do more and beyond what we would even ask or think. And that having been here, we would know that we were in the presence of the living God who loved us enough to send his son to die for us, who rose from the dead and who is coming again. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Jerusalem was a heavily fortified city. After capturing Jerusalem from the Jebusites around 1000 BC, David further fortified the city that was already known as the stronghold of Zion. The later kings of Judah followed his example and continuously upgraded the fortifications. We're told, for example, in 2 Chronicles that Uzziah built towers and that his son Jotham continued those fortifications. In 701 BC, in the face of an impending Assyrian invasion and siege, Hezekiah heavily fortified Jerusalem against the attack. In 2 Chronicles 32, verse 5, we read, he strengthened himself, built up all the wall that was broken, raised it up to the towers, and built another wall outside. Also, he repaired the millow in the city of David and made weapons and shields in abundance. Now, this millow, spelled M-I-L-L-O, I'm not really sure of the pronunciation, uh, consisted of an earth-filled wall which served as the city's northern defense perimeter. Even with such heavy defenses, a protracted siege could gain the surrender of Jerusalem if the people ran out of water. Hezekiah devised a sophisticated tunnel system to make sure the city had an internal supply of water. In addition, Jerusalem was literally honeycombed with massive reservoirs hewn out of rock called cisterns that held millions of gallons of rainwater. Then Hezekiah's son Manasseh built a wall without the city of David and raised it up a very great height. And so everywhere they looked, 
the inhabitants of Jerusalem could see the splendid fortifications of towers and gates and walls that could protect them from the mighty armies of their enemies. In addition, they had the added confidence that they could endure a long siege if necessary since they had access to a continuous fresh water source inside their city through Hezekiah's tunnel and through their system of cisterns. Finally, as we're gonna see in a later study, they believed that the fact that the temple was in Jerusalem ensured them that God would never let the city fall to invaders. They did indeed have these mighty fortifications, but in their pride and idolatry, they had forsaken the almighty God who fortifies. They were trusting in the fortifications of Jerusalem and spiting God, they needed to trust instead in the fortifier of Jerusalem and seek God. God sent Jeremiah to these overconfident sinners He had a message for them. He wanted them to hear his message for sure, but as we'll see today, he also wanted them to see his message. And they're gonna see it in Jeremiah. In verse 18, God told Jeremiah, for behold, I have made you this day a fortified city. He was God's prophet to speak God's word, but as his ministry progresses, we're gonna see that the people besieged Jerusalem, or Jeremiah, excuse me, over and over again, and each time God fortifies him as if he were a walled city, and he delivers him. And it's all to show them that they were trusting in their fortifications when they should have trusted in their fortifier. Thinking about that, I was wondering if God might not still do that today with us. I wonder if he makes us a visual aid to the gospel that we're sharing with the people that we're around. And the answer, of course, is yes. And so I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, God has set you over those who trust in their own fortifications. And number two, get yourself set to show you trust in the one who fortifies. In verses nine through 16, God has set you over those who trust in their own fortifications. The Christian life, at least on paper, is a walk of faith on a narrow path in which you keep yourself as unencumbered as possible while focusing on eternal rewards rather than temporal security. To the extent we pull that off and actually live that way, actually walk the walk, we are a stunning contrast to the non-believer who is immersed in the things of this world. It sets us over them, not in a sense of pride, but of humility that we are giving them a visual to our proclaiming of God's truth. We're showing them something about what it means to know God. Jeremiah, we're told, was set over the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem and the Gentile nations surrounding them. He was God's visual aid to them. And so we begin in verse nine. Then the Lord God put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Now, God could have simply said to Jeremiah, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. But he reinforced it by touching his mouth. Before God made Jeremiah a visual aid to others, he gave him a visual of his own. And so Jeremiah was able to to just have this reinforced idea that God's giving me words to say and it's as if God has a connection with my mouth. It's a good idea to keep in mind that as important as our words are, Our lives also speak volumes. The way we live reveals what we truly believe and where we actually place our trust. I can say anything I want, but 
uh, the rubber meets the road in how I actually live out my life from day to day. Verse 10 says, see, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out, to pull down, to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. God gave Jeremiah six things to do and four of them involved demolition. It makes sense. You can't build or plant until you've laid the proper groundwork or prepared the soil. But when the building and the planting is referring to ministering to people, people don't always want to root out or pull down or destroy or throw down the things of the flesh and of the world. We always want to just start right where we're at uh, and sometimes you know, there are just things that need to be removed from our lives before we can replace them with the good things that God has for us. I said they, referring to other people we might minister to, but I need to also say me and us. As we walk with the Lord over time, things tend to creep back into our lives or we foolishly invite them back. They seem harmless enough. They might be similar to a small plant here or there in the garden of the Lord. But if it's not from the Lord, if it's not for the Lord, I find that what I believed a harmless plant is really a toxic weed spreading through the Lord's garden, breaking up the foundation of my life. So the question, a question we might ask today is, is there something in your life that needs rooting out, pulling down, destroying, thrown down? Well, then we should do it, and we should do it today. We should do it right now so that the Lord can build or plant. Verse 11, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see a branch of an almond tree. And then the Lord said to me, you've seen well, for I am ready to perform my word. Jeremiah is probably walking along a footpath in his village of Anathoth. He saw an almond tree, not unusual. The almond tree was also known as the waker or the watcher because it's the first to bloom. God spoke to him from his observation. You know, I believe that God wants to show us lots of things from our common observations. We just need to develop our sensitivities to his still small voice. And by the way, there's a place for, you know, there's always a lot of talk about uh, getting, you know, divesting ourselves of uh, interruptions and all kinds of things and just kind of getting to a, like, a, uh, like a closet place where you can really hear from God. And, and I'm all for that. That's great. That's one way of, of, of really connecting with the Lord. I think we all need to have our prayer closet and, you know, get away from things that are a distraction. But Jeremiah was just walking through the countryside. He was out for a walk. And he was looking at the things around him. He wasn't trying to, you know, blind himself from other phenomena. And God said, now I can also speak to you through just the average, everyday, common occurrences of your life. You don't have to cloister yourself. You don't have to become a monk or a monk S, as the time, you know, would be. Or a monkey, I guess, either. But... Uh, <laughs> You, you, can, you know, and so the idea, you know, so sometimes you think, well, I can't really hear from the Lord because I, you know, I'm, I'm not in this prayer closet. I haven't divested myself. My phone might ring, you know, that kind. And the Lord says, no, just look around. I'm not going to speak to you through everything you see, but there's a lot of things that you can look at and that still small voice of the spirit will uh, bring something to your heart. We just need to believe that the Lord wants to talk to us uh, sometimes more than we want to listen to him. God had called Jeremiah in the earlier verses and had given him some idea what his ministry as a prophet would involve. 
Jeremiah was therefore probably wondering what kind of preparation, what kind of schooling would be required for him to be God's prophet. After all, as the son of a priest living in a priestly village, he knew that at age 25, you trained for five full years before you could start serving in the temple at age 30. Surely being the Lord's prophet would entail a much greater preparation. I mean, it makes sense on paper. There were lots of priests, so many that they only served a a few weeks a year on a rotation. And, and, And there were fewer prophets, and these were men who held a serious office. And so if if you're Jeremiah and you're a young, very young individual, as we saw last week, you're thinking, I wonder what kind of preparation I'm gonna maybe 10 years, you know, before I get my doctor of prophecy and am able to really minister for the Lord. And so therefore, it must have been quite a shock when God said, hey, what, what do you see? And you know, I see an almond tree, and, and you know, it's branching out, which means that you know, it's springtime. And so God says, yeah, right now is when we're going to start this prophetic ministry. I'm showing you that through this tree. It, there was no training, per se, just the touching of his lips. The Christian life always involves a kind of on-the-job training. You're serving God all the time, and as you do, he's training you, preparing you to do more later on, more and more, never less and less. Now, that's not to say that you, could ne- you should never go to school, that there's something wrong with seminaries. We like to joke about them and call them cemeteries, uh, and some of them are. Uh, you, know, you know, I like to read, I like to study. There's, you know, we're, we're not all into just spontaneous you know, spirit combustion and all that kind of thing. However, there's a fallacy a lot of times in our thinking that, hey, I'm just not ready for what I'm doing right now. I need more preparation for where I'm at right now before I can do anything. But that, you see, the the fallacy is that you're never gonna be prepared for what you're doing right now because God always wants to push you out on the front line where you don't know what you're doing right now. Otherwise, it's you and not him doing it through you. And so you can go to school, you can have all the preparation you want, but one of the points that we're gonna make this morning is that wherever you're at right now, God says, it's spring for you. I want you to minister right where you're at. There may be some things later on down the line we'll talk about that you need some preparation for, but that doesn't excuse you right now from ministering for me. I'm gonna give you some on-the-job training. And, And Jeremiah, it's just a mind blower to me. Jeremiah, you know, in his teens for sure, and God says, you're not gonna be a priest. You don't need that. You're gonna be a prophet and you're gonna start right now and all you need is my word. And uh, it, it, would, it was a mind blower. Verse 13, and the word of the Lord came to me the second time saying, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot and it is facing away from the north. Again, another common sight in rural Judah. It'd be like today as you're driving around, you'll see smoke coming up from all the backyards in Hanford as people are barbecuing for the big game. I don't know what God's trying to tell you through that, but I do know what he was telling Jeremiah. This boiling cooking pot was a standard issue. It would sit on a ring of stones with an opening in uh, one part of the ring so that you could add wood to the fire below it. 
Now, this particular pot was about to boil over from the north and spill on the ground. And so the Lord said to me in verse 14, out of the north calamity shall break forth on all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the families of the kingdoms of the earth, says the Lord. They shall come and each one set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against all its walls around and against all the cities of Judah. I will utter my judgments against them concerning all their wickedness because they have forsaken me, burned incense to other gods, and worshiped the works of their own hands. And so as we'll see as we go on in the book, Jerusalem would be besieged from the north by the armies of King Nebuchadnezzar. The Babylonians were geographically east of Judah, but all invasions came from the north because of how Jerusalem was situated. The sins of God's people could be summarized as having forsaken God for idols. As we get deeper into the book, we'll see more specifics of what they were doing and what they were not doing. God would besiege Jerusalem using the Babylonian armies of King Nebuchadnezzar. Jerusalem would fall as the people trusted in their fortifications rather than repenting of their sin and returning to the Lord. To simplify, we could say that judgment was coming and therefore God was calling people to repentance. In a broad, general, but very real sense, judgment is coming on our world. God is indeed long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and eternal life. Nevertheless, his long-suffering cannot wait forever. And the Lord has made known his plans for the future of the earth. We talk about it every week in our prophecy update. We live in the church age, this special age of grace in which God is calling out a people to himself from every nation, tribe, tongue, and people on the earth. But one day the Lord will return in the clouds and he will raise the dead in Christ and rapture the church and then we'll be looking uh, from heaven while others on earth are staring in the face of the great tribulation. The cauldron of the great tribulation, as it were, is going to boil over on this planet. It will be God's final call to repentance before the second coming of Jesus Christ to establish his kingdom on the earth. But even with that said, we don't need to look at that future We can just look at our own future. No one has any guarantee that they will live another hour. It's appointed to men once to die, the Bible says, and then afterwards there is judgment. People don't like to think about or admit it, but they are besieged by sin and death. Every person that is not a Christian is under siege. Death and sin are besieging them and they need to do something about it before they die in their sins. Most people choose to ignore the siege. They either ignore it or they trust in some other fortification. A lot of people on the planet trust in a religion. They understand that they're besieged. They know there's something wrong with the human condition. And, and they know they're going to die, and so they, they find some religion by which they can work their way to heaven, they think. Others abandon religion and spirituality completely, and they trust in things like science or the scientific method or in politics or in some in their material possessions. They just try and make their life as comfortable as possible and hope for the best. The list is just... Uh, on and on in terms of what people trust in, but we know that nothing can deal with sin or overcome death except faith in Jesus Christ. 
because death and sin must be defeated by God on the cross. And only the God-man dying in our place can do that. So you see, if you're a Christian, God has, in fact, set you over those who trust in their own fortifications. You are their Jeremiah to warn them that they are besieged by relentless enemies, death and sin, whom they cannot defy or defeat apart from a personal relationship with the living God through his son, Jesus Christ. Your ministry as one who speaks forth God's word began the day you received the Lord for yourself. And every day since then has been an on-the-job training for where God has set you right now. And the Lord would say to you, where you're at right now, I have prepared you for that. I'm still preparing you. We're gonna do other things together. There are other good works for you to discover, but whatever you're facing today, whichever people uh, you are ministering to, you're ready because ministry is always god Uh, humbling us, filling us, using us beyond our own capabilities anyway. And so it's a very encouraging message. Verses 17 through 19, get yourself set, therefore, to show you trust in the one who fortifies. As I said, Jerusalem seemed impregnable, especially when you factored in the presence of God in the temple. It's interesting, when we studied Ezekiel on Wednesday nights, there's a long passage where God's presence actually leaves the temple and lingers around Jerusalem for a while until it's finally gone. God is not going to allow these people to continue in their sin. Temple or no temple, he will discipline them. The people had forsaken God. He wanted to show them that they needed him, the fortifier, rather than their fortifications. And so he'd show them in Jeremiah that a mighty fortress is our God. Verse 17, therefore prepare yourself and arise and speak to them all that I command you. Do not be dismayed before their faces lest I dismay you before them. Prepare yourself uh, is better translated, gird up your loins. Men wore a long outer garment in those days. I've been trying to bring that back, but without success. In order to do strenuous work, they'd have to tuck in their outer garment to their belt. Now, we are all about preparation. We're not against preparation. I hope what I said earlier, you know, is in perspective. We don't mind people preparing, but we can sometimes forget that God is about action. He says, prepare yourself and arise. It's simultaneous, That's God's way of saying that my word is my enabling. How do you prepare yourself? You receive the word of God. And if you've received the word of God, then he has enabled you and empowered you to minister. He says, do not be dismayed before their faces. Dismayed means discouraged or afraid. As you know, Jewish culture was and is very expressive. You read a lot of episodes in the Bible, Old and New Testament, where there's tearing of the clothes and throwing dust in the air, things like that, gnashing of teeth. If you could have invented Velcro back in those days, you'd be a millionaire because the Jews were always tearing their clothes. They must have huge wardrobes. Every other minute, they're tearing their clothes. The prophet says something, you know, like, oh, dust in the air, And so Jeremiah is being told, he says, hey, you're gonna go to the people, you're gonna say what I want you to say and they're gonna tear their clothes, they're gonna throw dust in the air, they're gonna gnash their teeth at you, they're gonna do a lot worse things than that as we'll see in terms of persecuting him. And so God says, don't be dismayed. Is it really that easy? 
Can I just change my mind and not be discouraged or afraid? Well, the answer to that biblically is a qualified yes. It's qualified by the fact that I see so many of the heroes of the faith in the Bible afraid and discouraged, but then I see how that God was with them and he brought them through their trouble to a deeper, greater, fuller walk with him. God frequently says, fear not. It implies that his uh, saints were afraid. Comes to Paul the Apostle in a vision in the book of Acts when he's uh, ministering in the city of Corinth and he says, don't be afraid. And so that tells me Paul was afraid. You know, when God comes to you and says, don't be afraid, you don't say, oh no, I'm not afraid. (laughs) He recognizes that you're afraid and he says, don't be afraid. And so that's what I mean. There's a qualified yes. It isn't that, well, you can't ever be afraid. You should never be dismayed. There's no such thing as discouragement. It means that you really can change your mind about it as God brings you through it and reminds you that he is over that and he is with you and present with you, giving you a deeper, greater, fuller walk with him. To Jeremiah, he added, lest I dismay you before them. I paused for a long time on this phrase. It bothered me. It sounded like when my dad used to tell me, you need to quit crying or I'll give you something to cry about. (laughs) What was it about, you know, that era of parents? I mean, that was like you go to dad school and that was the first, there must have been a class on how to say that. Hopefully you've never said that to your children unless you were joking. I'll give you something to cry about. All right, I'm still crying. Now, to be fair, my dad never did give me anything to cry about. He, he uh, always, th- you know, he would threaten to hit me, but it probably would have helped me if he had. But, uh, you know, he was, he was a great dad. But uh, is that what God is saying to Jeremiah? Saying, don't be dismayed or I'll dismay you. You want to see dismay? I can bring dismay on you. I don't think so. I can't. I just can't believe that. And so here's what I think is going on. It's like this. I can believe God's word is my empowering, giving me boldness. Or I can stand in my own strength, in which case I'm going to show fear and discouragement. And so it isn't that God is going to abandon me and dismay me but that I just quit trusting him. And so God's saying to Jeremiah, hey, don't be dismayed. Believe I'm with you. Have the boldness of the Holy Spirit or don't. Stand there in your own strength and you'll really be dismayed. And and so I would encourage, I try to encourage myself, I would encourage you, when you're super discouraged, super afraid in in a spiritual sense, it, it almost has to be that you're standing in your own strength trying to figure things out. Because God wants to come to you and say, hey, don't be dismayed. Saints have been in situations like this for centuries. We've gone through many fiery pits and we'll come out the other end. Verse 18, for behold, I have made you this day a fortified city and an iron pillar, a bronze walls against the whole land, against kings, against princes, priests, and against the people of the land. And so Jeremiah was God's fortified city. To a people who are trusting in a fortified city uh, and their temple, God says, you're a fortified city and you're my temple. Kings and princes and priests and the people are all gonna be against you, but you're gonna be able to stand and withstand their onslaught. 
To those who have spiritual insight, Jeremiah, you're going to be a visual representation of the simple truth people have abandoned that having a fortifier is more important than having fortifications. Now, this doesn't mean Jeremiah was going to have an easy go of it. He didn't have a force field. You know, it wasn't that when people attacked him, he went... I mean, he was, he was going to be thrown in the stocks and thrown in a cistern and left for dead and all of those kinds of things. But he's going to rebound from them. He's going to continue to minister in the power of the Lord through them. And people with eyes to see and ears to hear were going to be able to look at him and say, what is going on with Jeremiah? Why isn't he failing? Why isn't he falling? Why can't we kill him? And the answer was going to be because he's being fortified. He has the fortifier. We have the fortifications. They're going to fail because we've left the fortifier. The Jews standing out in the middle of a field with God would have been more powerful than hiding behind their walls, trusting in the temple when they had forsaken God. That's the picture that God wants to give them. You and I live in precarious times. I only have to watch a news broadcast for about 10 minutes before I feel fear washing over me. Whether it's the environment or the economy, it seems like the outlook is bleak at best. That's the best thing I can say about the future of the world, bleak. Things are falling apart. As a result, it's estimated that there are over 4 million preppers in America. How many of you have heard of the prepper movement? I'm not asking if you're a prepper. Not a doctor prepper, a prepper. (laughs) They are those who, for various reasons, are preparing, they're prepping for the worst by converting spare rooms into storage pantries, learning how to grow survival gardens. They're stocking up on everything from gas masks to auxiliary generators. Oh, yeah, that, uh, now you raise your hand, right? No, I'm just kidding. God bless you if you are. I'll f- give me your address so when it happens, I can come over. <laughs> the, the example I'm using here is that I'm always tempted to put all my effort and energy into fortifying myself. While all of us need to determine just how much each of us is going to prepare for a disaster, it's easy to forget what a mighty fortress is my God. I mean, even, I remember, I think it was, I hate to say it, but I think it was in Mad Magazine. I was a kid, I used, to, I used to read Mad Magazine, and it was during the time I could relate to this, it was during like the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I don't know if how many of you remember this, but everybody was building bomb shelters. Bomb shelters were big during that era, and uh, Mad Magazine, it, it was a little drawn-out drama kind of a thing where this guy was reading about the possibility of nuclear war, and so he started feverishly digging out this bomb shelter. And while he was working on his bomb shelter, a news reporter comes up behind him, and he had one of those old flash kind of cameras, you know, that they used to have. Some of you think, what kind of era are you from? <laughs> and he takes a picture of the guy, and the guy looks, and he's so scared that he dies, He thinks it's the flash of the nuclear bomb and he hasn't gotten into his bomb shelter yet. And it always stuck with me. I thought, yeah, I mean, I could have a bomb shelter, but how do I know I'm going to get there on time? How do I know I'm going to be able to live there underground in my bomb shelter drinking Perrier and, you know, eating beans or whatever it is you stock your bomb shelter with? So if you want to have a bomb shelter, that's great. I kind of like to have one. It'd be a great playroom and slash bomb shelter, but there's no, you can't really trust in your fortifications. 
And that's what cracks me up about people who say, no, I'm going, I've got, yeah, I'm gonna live in the mountains underground and I've got enough food for however. I don't think you've read what the great tribulation is gonna be like. You're not gonna be safe underground in the Sierra Mountains. Uh, you know, so I'm not saying not to prepare. We all prepare. I have enough food to last a couple of days. <laughs> Some of you have more food. I know who you are. <laughs> you spare a piece of bread for your pastor. But, uh, you know, maybe that's my, you know, way of trusting in your fortifications. I don't know. The idea is all of us, to some extent, trust in things, and we have to think, you know, I need to just trust in the living God. It doesn't mean I should be foolish, that I shouldn't, you know, uh, prepare for anything or look ahead. That, that's not it at all. But I think you understand that it's easy to get so freaked out about what's happening in the world that you trust in things that are of the world rather than just trusting in the Lord. Trust in the Lord and minister. Now, I can tell you all day that I trust God, that he is my strength, and that all things work together for good, and that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But until I am in some trouble or trial, I cannot show those things to you. And so God carefully and meticulously plans out my path so I will be in situations that show he is with me to deliver me when I am besieged. Again, verse 19, they will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you for I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. And so God's gonna show them through Jeremiah that he can deliver them without their fortifications. Missouri is the show me state, right? Anybody from Missouri? Anybody love Missouri? No Missourians? All right, I gave you your chance. Christians are like Missouri. We are the show me saints. God puts us in a situation and then he says, show me a saint, someone who knows my presence and can show it to others by receiving a peace that passes all understanding and by revealing a joy unspeakable and full of glory. Job, the original show me saint. The devil said, Job doesn't love you. You take some things away from him, you do some things to him and he'll curse you to your face. And God says, Job, show me. Show me a saint. And, and man, he went, through, he went through the ringer. He had his ups and downs, quite honestly, but at the end, God said to, you know, hey, listen to my servant Job. He foiled the devil. And along the way, Job grew in his relationship with the Lord. That's, you and I are all set out at some point in our lives to be show me saints. God says that to us. If I'm Jeremiah, quite honestly, I'm being honest, I would be content to stay a country boy who serves God at my convenience as a well-trained priest in my normal course of activities. I would be content to serve between the ages of 30 and 50 and then retire and give godly advice to folks back in my hometown. And on paper, at least, I'd be serving the Lord, right? That's what I'm called to do. I'm born a priest's son, trained for the priesthood, served as a priest. I can't help it, there, I can't help it there's more priests than there are jobs for priests. And then Old Testament says I can't serve after I'm 50 no matter what, so I'm just, I'm retired. That's a pretty good gig. It's pretty good, that's better than a lot of the jobs you and I have. Plus, it's serving the Lord. 
Seems like a good life, a godly life. But God had another plan and another path for Jeremiah. He said, I want to show you to others, and I need to show my glory through you. And so you're not going to even be a priest. You're going to be my prophet. And you're not going to have a comfortable life in the country. You're going to have to go to the city. And you're not going to serve in the temple. You're going to stand outside the temple and, and preach a message, and people are going to want to kill you for it. But Jeremiah, I need a fortified city. We live in perilous times and my people are about to be overrun and I have to continue to call to them over and over and over again because that's who I am and that's what I do. And the fact that they're not gonna heed you, that's none of your business. That's my business and my mysterious counsel but I need somebody who's willing to get way out of their comfort zone even though their comfort zone is serving me, you need to get out of it and serve me a little bit differently in a different way that I'm calling you to. Perilous times in which we live call for strong visuals to non-believers. We need to think beyond just clocking in and clocking out of serving the Lord in ways that are comfortable and at our leisure. We still need to do those kinds of things for sure, but we also need to step up and walk in ways that show that we're on an altogether different path than the people around us who are perishing and who need to see in us a peace that passes all understanding and a joy unspeakable and full of glory.